Our whole world is sitting there on a computer. It's in the computer. Oh, great. What else could go wrong today? Great googly moogly. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today we're talking about passing time. And by that I mean the stuff we do to keep ourselves busy during the course of the day. When I initially started thinking about this episode, I was thinking of calling it Playtime. Because I was going to talk about some of the stuff that we did when I was a kid that was basically hobby-type activities that we did between homework, between chores, between doing things we were supposed to do. But it wasn't really play stuff. I mean, it was playtime where we could have been playing, but these activities weren't really play. And I know that sounds confusing, so I'm going to explain. As I'm sure you know by now, when I was a kid, it was before the internet. It was before computers. Video arcades were just starting to pop up all over, but that was it as far as video games. There was nothing at home when I was a kid. When we were home and we wanted to pass the time and we weren't out playing with our friends, we had to have other activities to keep ourselves busy. I mean, of course, there was reading and there was coloring books. I'm trying to think, was there anything else? Yes, of course there was. You could draw, you could write. And of course, we played games too, but you didn't always want to play games or you couldn't always play games, either because you weren't in the mood or because your friends weren't available. So there were lots of things that were developed to help us pass the time. And a lot of these things that were developed were actually somewhat intellectual, somewhat smart, and kind of designed to make us better, more well-rounded, smarter people. And so that's what we're talking about today. The thing that inspired this episode today was when we were at a flea market last week, And I saw an old electric football game. Now I know, that's not a very intellectual thing. But that actually got me to thinking about how different things were. And the things that we did to pass the time back then. That don't exist anymore because the time we have and the world we live in is so different. Now the electric football game, which I've mentioned previously, was one of the mainstays of our childhood. If you were a sports fan. Now electric football, clearly a game. I wanted to mention it briefly because it's a little different from the other things that I'm going to talk about. But the way we passed our time with electric football and how it worked and why it worked and why we spend time with it is one of the things that got me thinking about this. Nowadays, if you want to play football at home, you just plug Madden into your computer or into your console. The teams are there. The rosters are there. There's playbooks for every team. And you use your controller to manipulate your players. It's all there on your video screen. When I was a kid, electric football was all there was as far as a simulation was concerned. And believe me, it wasn't really a simulation. The electric football game that I grew up with consisted of the playing field and then 22 players. And if you've never seen an electric football game, you can obviously Google it. But it was a unique way to pass the time when we were kids. And you could play it with a friend or you could play it on your own. The playing field in the electric football game was about two and a half feet long, about a foot and a half wide. The board itself was about, I'd say, an inch and a half thick. The top part of the board was made out of sheet metal, and on the sheet metal was painted the football field. It was a nice bright green. It had the yard line markers on it. It had the end zones on it. Certain of these fields were particular to a team. You could get a Jets branded version or an NFL branded version or even a college version. And of course, the appropriate logos would be painted on the sheet metal. 
The sheet metal sat on top of a frame, and inside that frame, in that inch and a half space I was telling you about, there was an electronic gizmo that made the sheet metal vibrate. And I seem to remember, although I can't be 100% sure, I seem to remember there was a control that could increase the vibration. As I sit here now, I just don't remember. But I think you could control the vibration. And this was important. Why? Because the vibration is what made your players move. Yeah, I know, it sounds weird, right? Well, in addition to this sheet metal playing field, each team had 11 players. And the players were little plastic figures, maybe an inch tall. They were on a little stand. And on the bottom of the stand were these little plastic fibers or teeth or feelers, whatever you want to call them, that sat on the sheet metal. And the player figures themselves were all in different poses for football players. You had blockers. You had the quarterback. You had the running backs. Every position was represented. So each side would line up their players on the field. But while you were doing this, it was off. The switch was off. There was a switch to turn the field on and off. So you would set your players up and get ready to run your play. Now, the football was a little wool pellet, probably the size of a tic-tac. And it was squishy enough so that you could tuck it under the arm of the ball carrier. And what you would do, you'd line up your blockers. You'd put your ball carrier behind the line. The other guy, or you if you were playing by yourself, would line up the defense, put the players wherever they could fit, wherever you thought the ball was going to go, and then when everybody was ready, you'd hit the on switch, and the field would start vibrating. And what would happen is the players would vibrate across the field. The feelers on the bottom of the stand would help with the direction that the player would go. At least that's what we were told. Quite honestly, I'm not 100% sure that actually worked, but that's what we were told. If you brushed the fibers or the feelers or whatever they were, if you brushed them to the left, the player would run to the right and vice versa. And so you'd have your players there and the field would be vibrating. And the players would be moving in a direction and you'd watch the players vibrate. Yes, that's what you did. And you could tell your guy was tackled if the stand of one of the players on the other team touched the stand of your ball carrier. If that happened, that's where the play ended. And you'd turn it off. Mark the ball and get ready for your next play. That was electric football, except for the passing game. Yes, there actually was a passing game. What you would have to do for the passing game is you had a quarterback and he had a little spring-loaded arm. So you would take your little wool football and put it in the quarterback's hand. And you actually got to hold on to your quarterback if you were calling a passing play. So you'd turn the on switch, the field would vibrate, the players would move. And you hoped that your receiver would break free from the defender, whoever was put on him. And you'd hold your quarterback behind the line of scrimmage. And you'd flick his arm. And you had to hit your receiver with your little woolen football on the fly. And if you did, the pass was complete. And if you didn't, incomplete. As you can imagine, this was not an easy technique to master. Forward passes were few and far between, which is why there was not much of a passing game in electric football. But it existed as an option because they were trying to make it look like football. And let me tell you, we would play electric football games all the time. And if I didn't have a friend who wanted to play, I'd play games against myself. I'd play offense, I'd play defense, because you really don't have any control over it once you turn the switch on. The playing field vibrates and the players go where the players go. You can set them up, but wherever they move as they vibrate along the field, that was the play. Whatever happened, happened. Now, one of the little techniques that we developed as we played the game was the flash placement, the ninja placement. You would place all of your players on the field, except the running back. Then, just before you'd flick the start button, you'd quick in a hurry, put your running back down on the field. Then, hit start. And with any sort of luck, you had your running back in an open lane so that he'd vibrate down the field with nobody touching him. 
But of course, the defense to that was that as a defender, you'd hold one of your players out and place him just as the running back was placed and just before the switch got flicked on. It became a ninja placement move for both the offense and the defense just before the switch went on because you were trying to develop ways to break the game open. I mean, think about it for a second. You've got a metal field that vibrates, a group of little figures bouncing along across the vibrating metal. You might get a three-yard gain, then you'd have to reset and do it again, kind of like regular football. Three yards in a cloud of dust. But you know what? It worked. We spent hours doing it. It was a way to pass the time. And it's not something we do anymore. It's not something anybody's interested in anymore. Because we have Madden and so many other options on the computer, on your tablet. But electric football, that was a way we passed a lot of time when I was a kid. But that was more of a game thing. We had a lot of other things that weren't really games, but they were time passers. And a lot of these things were in the artistic field or the scientific field. For instance, one of the big things we got when I was a kid was a spin art machine. I don't know if you've ever seen the spin art at the arcades or on the boardwalks or at the fairgrounds. But what spin art is, is you take a piece of poster board or a piece of canvas, depending on where you are, and you put it on top of what's equivalent to a turntable. But this turntable spins at like 300 revolutions per minute. I mean, it spins around. You hit the button, it goes whizz, and it spins crazy. So what you would do at the fairgrounds, at the boardwalk, and in this little home kit, you would take your piece of poster board, you would clamp it down to a wheel in the middle of a bowl. You needed the bowl because if you put paint on there and spun it without a bowl, you would redecorate the living room and mom wouldn't be happy. So you'd have the turntable, which was mounted on a little motor, at the bottom of this moderately deep bowl. The bowl itself was probably a foot and a half wide. Then you had squeeze bottles of paint. Blue, green, red, white, black, all the different colors that you could find in any palette. And what you'd do is you would squeeze drops of paint onto the canvas or the board. You could do lines, you could do faces, whatever you wanted to do, whatever colors you wanted to do. And then you'd hit the button while the paint was still wet, and that wheel would kick in and start spinning. You could let it spin for a second or 10 seconds or 30 seconds, however long you wanted it to go. And the spinning would create these burst effect, snowflake effect, explosion effect looks on your poster board or your canvas. And a lot of these were pretty cool looking. I mean, it was abstract art, but it was cool looking abstract art. And we did it. You could flex your creative muscles and paint all different kinds of spinny, explodey type things. It was a really cool thing. And we spent a lot of time creating spin art masterpieces. Another thing they had that we didn't have, but Mrs. Gamerdude's brother had one. And I knew other kids who did have them. They were wood-burning kits. And what it was was basically a hot poker with a handle on it that you'd plug in and it would heat up and it would get so hot that you could etch your name or words or borders on a piece of wood. It was truly something designed to burn wood, a handheld tool to use to create art on wood. We didn't have one of those. We had the paint. We didn't have the wood burning. My parents were probably wise not to give us one of those. Otherwise, my brother and sister might have had the Gamer Dude brand. You never know. But one of the cool things that I did have, at least cool to me, was the model car kits. There were a bunch of manufacturers when I was a kid. AMT, Ravel, Monogram, several others as well. But these were all companies that specialized in making plastic model car kits. Now, model car kits still exist, but when I was a kid, they were a kid thing. They were for kids. You didn't have, or at least I wasn't aware, of any adults who engaged or indulged in the model car craze. It was mostly for kids, 12, 13, 14 years old. I may have done it younger than that, 
But the model car kit was exactly what it sounds like. It was a model of an actual car, either an actual real-life car or a car that you would see in the movies or on a TV show or even in the cartoons. Sometimes the models were of concept cars. Sometimes they were unique to the artist who made them. But you could get any variety of model cars. There were other models, too. I'll talk about those in a second. But my focus, because I was such a car nut, my focus was always on the model cars. A Corvette, a Mustang, an old DeSoto, an old Cadillac. I'm trying to remember how many cars that I had. I had tons of them. And putting these together would take a lot of time. Because you had to put together hundreds of pieces. All of the pieces of these models were on these plastic frames. I don't even think you see those plastic type frames anymore. It was molded plastic and you would get pieces of the engine, pieces of the exhaust system, pieces of the chassis, the fenders, the interior, the dashboard. Every little piece was molded and part of a frame and you had to cut them off or twist them off. I would tend to cut them because that way you wouldn't have those little nubs that would stick out if you just twisted them off the frame because you wanted smooth pieces to work with. But the engine, for instance, would be in two halves. So you would have to break out both halves of the engine block. And then to put it together, you would need plastic modeling glue. Ravel had its own modeling glue. It's a special kind of glue that bonded the plastic together. By the way, if you've ever heard reference to sniffing glue, this is the glue that the kids sniffed back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Plastic modeling glue. I didn't know anything about sniffing glue when I was a kid. I'd heard about it, but I thought it was kind of stupid. It was like sniffing magic markers. Yeah, the glue had a pleasant enough scent, but the concept of sniffing glue to get a high, it was totally over my head. I had no idea what that was all about. I just like using the glue to put the pieces of the model together. That's what it was for. That's all I thought it was for. I was very naive and very protected. Sniffing glue? No, I'm building a model, damn it. But what you would do is you would take the two pieces of the engine block and glue them together. And then you'd glue in the drive shaft. And then you'd glue the drive shaft to the engine block. And then you'd glue the axle to the drive shaft. Then you'd have to get the wheels on there. And if you had a really high-end model, you actually snapped the wheels on so they could spin. Sometimes you would glue the wheels on, which was fine. You didn't really play with these models. You just built them to display them. But some models would have spinning wheels so you could roll them. But you would glue all the pieces together from engine block to axle to the wheels, glue that under the chassis, glue the body on top. Sometimes you had to assemble the fenders. You had to get the interior done. You had to glue the interior to the chassis. And with the interior, you'd have to glue the seats down. You'd have to glue the dashboard in. You'd have to get the steering wheel connected correctly. And yes, there was a little steering rod that would have to connect to the front axle. One of the things you learned when you were doing these models is how a car actually worked. The steering wheel was connected to the front axle. The drivetrain was connected to the rear axle, back when there was rear-wheel drive cars. And then the object was to get the car complete and make it look as realistic as possible. And that could take hours, that could take days of work, depending on how many pieces and how complicated the model was. And let me tell you, I did tons of these cars. I loved building models. The downside for me, because I wasn't really artistic, the downside for me was trying to paint the models. I always screwed up painting the models. And yes, they did have paint specific for models, car modeling paint. Now, some guys would paint the pieces before they glued them together. I never wanted to take the time to do that. If I was going to try to paint a model, it would be after it was complete, which was all well and good, except for the fact that if you're trying to paint the interior after you've got it all together, you're going to screw it up because you got to get the little brush in through the window to touch up the dashboard, the steering wheel, the seats, that's why you painted it before, let the paint dry, and then put it together. I never did that. 
When I wanted to build a model, I wanted to build it right now. I didn't want to paint the pieces, wait for them to dry, and then put them together. I wanted the model, damn it, not the paint. I'm not a painter. But the bottom line of that is, I had very few painted models. If the model was built in white plastic, all of my cars were white plastic. If it was red plastic, they were red. There was no paint. I didn't have time for paint, and I sucked at it. There were other model kits, too. It wasn't just cars. I actually had a model of the Starship Enterprise. Now, that one was awesome. First of all, it came in white, so I didn't have to worry about painting it. Because the Enterprise was white, I didn't have to paint. It also came with decals. So, the NCC-1701, there was a decal to put right on the top and along the nacelles, those long extended things off the back of it. I always called them nacelles. Are they nacelles? I don't know. It's a word particular to Star Trek. You can call them whatever you want. But I had a model of the Starship Enterprise, and I built that proudly and carefully. I got the bridge together, got the nacelles together, and I actually installed little hooks on it so that I could hang it from the ceiling in my bedroom. I had the Starship Enterprise flying in my bedroom for many, many years. Right next to it, in attack position, I also had a Klingon battlecruiser. That was the Klingon Starship that you could also get a model of. And I did. Thankfully, that one was in gray. I didn't have to paint that one either. And I put that together and mounted that from the ceiling. And I had the Enterprise and the battlecruiser doing battle in my bedroom for many years. There was another thing we had to pass the time. I've mentioned these before, Erector Sets. A guy named A.C. Gilbert invented them back in the early 1900s. And what it was was a box full of metal pieces. He had little metal beams and brackets, curved beams, straight beams. He had pulleys and cogged wheels. He had little cables. He had axles and rods and cotter pins. And of course, he had nuts and bolts to put everything together. And the point of the erector set was just to build things. Now, they had different levels of sets from 500 pieces to 2,500 pieces and literally made out of metal. This wasn't any tinker toy. This wasn't any Lincoln log. If you got an erector set, that had some weight to it because it was made out of metal. Now, some of the advanced sets also had little motors in them so you could make vehicles powered by the little motor. You just had to follow the instructions and make your vehicle. So you could make vehicles, of course, a tow truck, a crane. You could make bridges. There was a kit where you could make replicas of the Empire State Building or the Eiffel Tower. There was one kit where you could make a working Ferris wheel. I mean, if you could envision it and make it with metal beams and brackets, you could do it with an erector set. And I've talked about the little vehicle that I made. I made a working vehicle. It wasn't a crane. It wasn't a tow truck. It was just a vehicle that moved across the floor. You flick the switch and it drove off. And I thought it was really cool. The problem that I always had with the erector set and this is just my mindset, I think, is once I built something, I didn't want to take it apart. I wanted to keep it and keep playing with it. A lot of kids who had erector sets would build, for instance, a replica of the Empire State Building. And they'd build it and look at it, show it to mom and dad, show it to the kids. Everybody would stand and nod and do a Clark Griswold take. Mm-hmm. Yep. Empire State Building. And then that was it. I mean, there wasn't even an Instagram or a Facebook to share it on. You would just gather the family around, take a look at it, and go, yep, that's it. It looks just like the Empire State Building. And then they take it apart, put the pieces back, and the next day go do something else with the same kit. That wasn't the way my mind worked. When I built something, I wanted to keep it. I didn't want to take it apart and do something else the next day. I built it. I want to keep it. So I had that stupid little erector set car going forever. And I didn't really build that many other things because I realized, okay, I got to put together. Now I got to take it apart to build something else. 
See, with the model cars, I built the model car, it was done. Put it on the shelf, look at it. Look, I built a DeSoto, and I got to keep it. I got to keep looking at the DeSoto. With the Erector set, the point was to build it and then take it apart and build something else. I didn't like that that much. The other thing we had were chemistry sets. Now, a chemistry set is absolutely a time passer. It's not a toy. You're not making toys out of it. You're not making games out of it, although we kind of did, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. The purpose of the chemistry set was to get you interested in chemistry. Now, these chemistry sets were put out by a lot of companies, but A.C. Gilbert, who did the erector sets, also did chemistry sets. But lots of places did chemistry sets, lots of manufacturers. I mean, Sears. There's a company called ChemCraft, another one called Merit. They all did chemistry sets. I had a Gilbert one. I think Gilbert was the most popular. And the chemistry set was in a box, and the box would unfold and look like a four-panel divider, basically, about two feet tall with little shelves in it. When it was closed up, it was pretty thick, like maybe six or seven inches thick. And then you opened it up, and it would open once, and then again, so you had four panels. And there were little shelves on those panels, and on those shelves were bottles of chemicals. There was a test tube rack. It had little test tubes in it. Yeah, it had a portable little Bunsen burner. It really wasn't a Bunsen burner. It was an alcohol lamp. But it was a legit alcohol lamp. You could fill it with alcohol and light the wick, and you would have fire. And you used that fire to do actual experiments. There was a little instruction book that came with it. You would heat up liquid, put a little magnesium sulfate in some water, heat it in a test tube, see what happened. Don't do that, by the way. I don't remember what magnesium sulfate is or does. I'm just using a chemical I remember as an example. But yeah, you had a test tube holder. You would put a little chemical in there, put a little liquid, whether it's water or alcohol or whatever, and you could heat it up over the lamp. You'd have litmus paper or whatever other experiment they had in the manual. And I looked it up. There were all kinds of chemicals they included in these kits. They had aluminum sulfate, tannic acid, calcium oxide. They did have magnesium sulfate. I know three that they had for sure. Sulfur powder, carbon powder, and saltpeter, which is also potassium nitrate. And the reason I know those three is because one of my friend's fathers said, hey, you guys can make gunpowder. And that's where the chemistry set became fun. Yes, the responsible dad from next door came over and gave us the recipe for gunpowder, mixing carbon powder, sulfur powder, and saltpeter. Because the chemistry set came with a mortar and pestle. You know, that little cup and the porcelain thing that you grind powder up with? If you mix those three in the correct proportions, and I'm not giving you the recipe, you grind those up and you can make actual gunpowder out of a home chemistry set, which is probably one of the reasons they stopped making home chemistry sets. But yeah, they had all kinds of chemicals in these sets. They had ammonium nitrate, which, if you know anything about bomb making, that's one of the chemicals you use. They had something called potassium permanganate, which is poisonous and flammable. Surely no problems if you have that in a home chemistry set, right? Back in the 1950s, with the coming of the atomic age, some of those chemistry sets actually had actual radioactive uranium ore. I can't imagine why they discontinue that. But the point of the chemistry sets was to get us interested in science. Ooh, look what happens when we do this. Oh, look what happens when we experiment with that. And we would do that. We would have our chemistry sets in the basement. I would do it by myself, but sometimes the friends would come over. We'd go through the manual because there was a manual with little experiments you could do. And you'd do your little experiments, whether it was heating something up, making chemical compounds, watching sediments settle. There was all kinds of little things we could do. And we did. That was how we passed the time. 
Now, the death of the home chemistry set started in the 1970s with the passage of a variety of laws designed for toy safety and consumer protection. I guess because not all of the kids were as responsible as we were, you know, except for that little gunpowder thing. But once they started outlawing certain chemicals in chemistry sets, they stopped making chemistry sets. Because you can only do so much with baking soda and vinegar. Once you've made it fizz, that's pretty much all there is. We don't pass time like that anymore. We, and I mean we as a society, parents and children, we scroll the internet. We play video games. We make TikTok dances. That's how we pass time. There's no more spin art. There's no more wood burning. There's no more making gunpowder in the basement. Okay, that's probably a good thing. But still, our time passing things are very, very different these days. It's interesting to me and also kind of sad. I mean, even a non-artist like me could make spin art. And you know, having a working knowledge of how to make gunpowder, probably not a bad thing. Maybe not in the hands of a 12-year-old, but at least now, if the zombie apocalypse hits and we run out of gunpowder, you know who to come to. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate you spending the time listening. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.